There were six of us, just an ordinary family, Bob and myself and our children, four children. The boys, Robin and Billy, our daughter Helen, who was mentally retarded, and of course the new baby, Michael we'd named him. He was 12 weeks old, just the six of us, a pretty ordinary family, until one summer Sunday. It started with griping stomach pains and Robin was admitted to a children's hospital, Holy Innocence, a case of suspected appendicitis. It was nighttime when our GP phoned. It's a little more serious than an appendix, I'm afraid, Mrs. Heron. Confusion flooded over me. What serious condition could surgery reveal in an eight-year-old child? His voice drifted on. Tumours. Words alien, unfamiliar, yet Gross. ominous. Tumours? Gross? Probably benign, Mrs. Heron. A test would Slowly, tell. I forced myself to use the fearful word. Cancer? You don't mean cancer? I awaited his denial. It didn't come. Well, there's always hope. With children, there's a good chance. But what sort of cancer? Where? I mean, Robin's always been in such good health. Maybe I'd misunderstood him. There are different cancers, many different types. A Robin's surgeon, Mr. Farconan, will explain it all to you. I'll ring you on Wednesday. We'll have the results of the tests by then. My hands shook convulsively as I replaced the receiver. Instinct banished conditioned inhibitions. Then the dry sobbing gave way to panic. I dashed from the telephone to where Bob sat watching television. Incoherently, my hands covering my face, I tried to babble out the awful message. That night I prayed, yet reason conflicted with faith. In three days, Robin's sentence would be passed. It had already been passed. For malignant or benign, rational thinking told me that nothing could now change the reality. Nothing. The nightmare journey from Alpha to Omega had begun. At home, the telephone rang ceaselessly. Promises of rosaries, tridiums, novenas and masses. With God, all things are possible. Faith can move mountains. More things are wrought by prayer than this world dreams of. Lord, I do believe. Help thou my unbelief. I played out a charade of calm optimism. My faith in God was uncertain, but my confidence in the medical staff was absolute. They were doing what was best. Two days passed, days of post-operative progress. Tomorrow we would know the verdict. But we didn't hear. All day we waited. At Holy Innocence, no one volunteered information. The GP didn't telephone. Waiting. Soon. They must tell us soon. Another day went by before I met the surgeon. Mr. Verconan stood facing me. He didn't sit down, neither did I. Haltingly, I asked, Did you have any results from pathology? He nodded. With nerves taut as coiled steel wire, I heard his reply. I felt a burning behind my eyes, a tightening brace of pain clamp round my temples. Robin had cancer. As Robin began to recover from surgery, his spirits revived. I wilted. I was exhausted by day, restless at night. I met Malcolm's mother one morning in the coffee bar. 
Only her chain smoking revealed the strain under which she lived. Malcolm is six now. He has cystic fibrosis and there's some minor infection at the moment. It's responding to antibiotics. She talked on, not needing any questions, any replies. She explained that at home, Malcolm slept in a mist tent. It keeps the mucus in his lungs moist and he can cough it up and relieve his breathing. He's having physiotherapy while he's here. That's why I'm along so early this morning. You see, Malcolm starts screaming when he sees the therapist on the passage. It's bang, bang, bang around his back and chest and he hates it. She drew heavily on her cigarette until the tip glowed red. My older boy had cystic fibrosis too. It's genetic, you know. We took him to Lourdes. It's a last-ditch stand for many parents. There's always the hope of a miracle. And they feel that everything possible that could be done has been done. You went to the baths there? Yes, of course. The helpers are very kind. But the children can't understand what it's all about. The strangers, the undressing, the chilly water. They're immersed in it up to the neck. And prayers are said in French for them. I just couldn't take the screaming and the struggling. Couldn't bear it. That's why we're not bringing Malcolm. I just haven't the faith or the courage anymore. My God, you have courage. You're wrong, you know. It's not courage. It's endurance. You just go on because you've no alternative. Nearly a fortnight had passed. After his ward round one afternoon, Mr. Falconan called me into the anteroom. I'll have to operate again. Why? But why? I don't understand. Why? For Robin's sake. It would be beneficial to do a thorough exploration of the intestines. His decision was authoritative. Next day, I began to realise what major surgery involved in suffering. A gauze pad over the dark, blood-stained wound. Swollen lips, cracked and encrusted in dried mucus. A narrow plastic tube had been inserted down Robin's nose into the stomach to draw off secretions and gastric juices. It did its job erratically. but At regular intervals, a nurse came to disconnect the tube from the glass jar into which it emptied. She attached a syringe and drained off the thick fluid by hand-manipulated suction. Each time, Robin woke from his drugged sleep and whined with pain. His body revolted. He gagged ineffectually, a dry retching. His stomach was empty of everything except painful sensation. One day passed, then another. Again, he started the haul back to recovery. Fear fluttered in his mind. I'm afraid to sleep now in case they take me away for another operation. Last time they said it was only for an X-ray and and look what happened to me. Oh, Robin. Surgery requires a signature of consent for the general anaesthetic. We'll never allow any further operations. That's a promise. I meant it. Ahead of us stretched the summer that would be his last. The weather was capricious, sunshine and intermittent rainy days. We capitalised on every opportunity, left nothing until later, for later might never come. One evening, we took Robin and Billy up to the hills to a gentle valley where the river meandered slowly, brown and shallow by sandy banks, on its journey to the city and the sea. They shared the engrossment of fishermen, contentedly casting, catching nothing. I unpacked a picnic supper, tea from a thermos. We took snapshots with a newly purchased camera, capturing moments on celluloid against the time when such moments would be only memories. Next afternoon, the pain started. Medication brought only brief relief. By evening, Robin's screams were so loud he could be heard on the street outside. Three times before dawn, the GP came and gave him morphine. Mrs. Heron, I'm going to phone Holy Innocence. 
Mr. Verconan will have to see him. Only ten days had passed since Robin's discharge. And his summer was over. A house surgeon came to examine Robin. It was an impossible task. Two doctors and three nurses held him while he struggled and hollered and shrieked. The tiny room was a scrummage of white figures, threshing limbs, threats and exhortations. Finally, he was pinned down. Oriel Verconan appeared. There appears to be an obstruction... It may only be a twist in the intestine. I have to operate again, right away. But if it's hopeless, why? Why? It may be something minor. We can't leave him in this pain. I promised him, Mr. Verconan. I promised him there'd be no more operations. I promised him and he believed it and I meant it. I'll tell him, Mrs. Heron. Robin, I have to do a small operation. Terror struck with cyclonic force... Robin screamed, almost hurling himself off the bed. A posse of medical staff appeared. Robin lashed out at them, fingernails tearing at the restraining hands which tried to hold him down. A screaming, snarling, trapped, wild thing. Scratching, scraping, biting. Forcibly he was subdued and given an injection. Mr. Vaconan's secretary telephoned. The surgeon wanted to see us. We sat down. He dispensed with prefatorial comment. I'm afraid it's hopeless. I'm very sorry. You mean... You don't mean Robin's going to die now? He'll probably last only a few days. At the rate of development since I last operated, I'd say less than a week. He was nearly gone on the table. Mother of God. How, how will he die? He may just ease away... Often there's a coma, so one hardly knows it's happened. This is dreadful for you. Dreadful. What did you find when you operated, Mr. Verconan? There was a growth. Did you remove it? A surgeon must make his own decisions. The interview was over. Robin was a write-off. Next day I heard Robin's screams as I came along the ward passage. His terror was centred on a syringe... Repeated injections were causing hypersensitivity in his buttocks. Sister Brown, the ward sister, tapped the file of morphine and broke the seal. Now, Robin, your mummy's here. Try to relax and count to ten. Then it will be all over. Together we counted. One, two, three... A gentle knocking on the cubicle door. Father says he won't delay you. It's about the sacrament of the sick. The sacrament of the sick. Extreme unction. Sacrament of the dying. A curd of nausea forced its way up from my stomach. Trembling, I made my decision. Nurse, nurse, please tell Father I can't leave Robin now. Tell him I respect his dedication and faith and ask him to appreciate my feelings too. The trembling continued as I sat down by Robin's bed. Gradually, his pain abated. Sister Brown sensed the stress. There's a cup of tea for you, Mrs. Heron. Her kindness made me cry. I dialed the undertaker's number. I'd known him personally in my tennis club dancing days and felt he'd understand my bizarre request. A white coffin. Oh, no flowers, except the posy, which will be delivered by the florist. Do you understand? You see, it's the last thing that we can do for Robin, ever. And so it must be just right. 
as perfect as we can make it. You do understand, don't you? He was gentle and professional. Do you have a family grave in it? Yes. Yes, we do. I gave him the details. For Robin, there'd be no shroud of death. I collected his school uniform. White shirt, red tie, pullover, grey trousers, red and white blazer. The colours of the Sacred Heart. Blood and purity. I packed the clothes in a small attaché case and ambiguously labelled it Robin Heron for emergency use. Sister Brown deferred to my request. She put the case under her desk in the ward station. Robin didn't die that week. The hours by his bedside merged into days, yet the time didn't seem excessively long. One of us remained with him in shift rotors right through the day. The Judas day started inauspiciously. Robin had a bed bath. He asked that I might stay with him. I hadn't seen his body fully exposed for a couple of weeks. Shoulder blades, like sharpened knives, seemed ready to pierce the frail film of skin. Each spinal vertebra thrust its bony nodule down the wasted back. Raw red abrasions marked the pelvic pressure. When the bedbath was over, Robin lay back watching me, suspecting tears. Please don't cry. I'm more comfy now. The hand on the bed reached for mine. Is this the nearest mortal man ever comes to perfect love? A moment when each, seared by his own scalding of suffering, reaches out to help the other. I prayed. Oh, God, take him now, before he notices the awful condition of his own body, before some inkling of the inevitable future filters through to terrorise his mind. Robin dozed. Night time came. I joined Bob by Robin's bedside. Robin stirred uneasily. His hand groped for mine. His skin was burning hot. His breathing changed, became rapid, then irregular. His voice was muzzy. Oh, my legs. Oh, my legs. They feel, they feel as if they're in my head. All wound round inside it. prayed. God, you struck Robin with a disease that doesn't cripple, it kills. Now, take him from our care to yours. Robin's face tensed, eyelids unshuttered, yellowed corneas weirdly exposed. His breathing became shallow, quick panting exhalations. Across the bed, Bob's eyes met mine. My spirit shouted, ordered the Almighty. It's in your power. You marked him apart like Cain. Now take him! The face on the bed contorted. Brows knit in furrows of fierce concentration. The distressed breathing faltered and stopped. Stillness deeper than silence. Time ceased to exist. My ruptured soul quaked in foreboding... Robin moved. A deep, deep sigh. A gasp of inhaled air. A stalling splutter. And then the breathing resumed. 
became rhythmic, normal. Robin slept. In that moment, my God died, as silently, as treacherously as sunlight on a spring day. That night, as usual, we left the car ungaraged, ready for an emergency call. Bob turned to me. You thought he was going to die tonight, didn't you? I prayed for it. I prayed for him to die. Bob, what are we reduced to when we can pray for our own child to die? I prayed too. God didn't answer. No, no. In a way. Tonight, when things were bad for Robin, I prayed that it would end peacefully while we were there. And it didn't. God didn't take him. He didn't take him, but at least he let him fall into a relaxed sleep. He eased things for him. I'm grateful for that. I took his hand. You've a marvellous faith. I envy you. Next morning, Robin was better. Believe it or not, he's eaten some breakfast, Mrs. Heron. But eating brought several complications. Robin's tormented torso arched. His wet feet padded inch by inch across the sheet until he lay sideways on the befouled bed, clear of the malodorous mound. As his legs couldn't sustain the strain, his curved body flopped down. Purged by pain, he was now subjected to the final human degradation, the indignity of lying fully conscious in a cesspool of his own slurry. Letters came. Personal encounters were the most harrowing. The only escape was to hear them out. She, you know, there's only one thing nicer than having a son on earth, and that is to have a son in heaven. At a bus stop, I gave a lift to a neighbour. I scarcely knew her. She launched enthusiastically into conversation. You know, when I tell my friends about Robin, I always say it's just terrible. I say it's so awful that such a tragedy should happen to such nice people. My husband is really very fond of you, and I'm only mad about Bob. You'll get great blessings out of this, wait and see. I was stunned into speechlessness. Great blessings. Now, maybe your little girl, Helen, isn't it? Well, maybe she'll improve mentally. She's brain damaged, isn't she? Sure, maybe she'll become normal. I thought of shouting at her, of stopping the car and ordering her to get out. Get out! I didn't. I switched off mentally. What else she said, I don't remember. But shrill and grating, the voice cackled on. As we were leaving after one particularly dreadful evening, Robin murmured from the nadir of his suffering. What will I do if tomorrow is as bad as today? And tomorrow came for Robin. It came with pain. There was a surgical emergency that evening. A little girl hit by a car. Robin's pain erupted. Night sister was in casualty. She didn't come. The pain increased. Robin shrieked and screamed. His body writhed, twisting and slithering over the crumpled bed, withered arms stretched above his head, gripping the metal bars. I felt nausea, panic. Christ, I must do something, anything. 
I left the cubicle. No one was in sight. The night sky through the open window of the sitting bay looked murky, misty with rain. I could do it now. Lift Robin's featherweight in my arms, see him wince momentarily as the steel frame touched the burning skin, ease him through the aperture, release my grip, split second drop to oblivion. Red raw meat, splintered bones, smashed skull, pulverised flesh, splattered blood-drenched body on the shiny pavement below. Christ, what if he didn't die? If by freak and awful chance he wasn't killed on impact? If somehow they could scoop up a living, breathing composition of molecules and atoms and start a surgical reassembly operation? I closed the window and turned away. Forty minutes after the onslaught of pain, the injection came. Robin developed a craving for jelly. Small bowls of jelly were kept in the ward kitchen, but frequently they were eaten by children with post-supper nibbling pangs. Nightmares suggested I try the hospital kitchen. It was in dimly lit darkness, but I blundered my way past the gleaming stoves and worktops and found the refrigerators. The first was locked. Like a ravenous Goldilocks, I tried the next. It opened. An automatic switch lit the interior. Great troughs of jelly lined the shelves. I scooped the surface and loaded up a wobbling dish of booty. The jelly journey became a nightly ritual. Then, one evening, a clumping woman in carpet slippers appeared from the shadows of the kitchen. What are you doing here? Oh, well, it's my son. You see, he's a patient and he wanted jelly. There was none in the ward kitchen, so it seemed all right for me to collect it from here. I can't allow it. Well, let's pretend you didn't see me. You know nothing about it. I don't exist. If there's any trouble, you tell the housekeeper that I insisted. I'll take the responsibility, OK? The fridges are locked at night. I have the key. Oh, that's all right. I'll manage. I said they're locked. And I said I'll manage. The spoon became a weapon in my hand. I could willingly have eviscerated her as she stood there, a solid bulwark of authority between Robin's empty plate and the jelly troughs. Well, one of the fridges is open, and I'm going to help myself, and that's it. White-hot fury ripped through me. We'd paid for food and nursing care. I'd be damned if anyone or anything would stand between a dying child and a few pence worth of jelly. She sensed the incipient violence emanating from me, and without a word she slouched off into the darkness, and Robin had his jelly. I made a decision. There were other hospitals, other doctors. There must be something positive we could do. Next day, I moved into action. Our choice was Dr Monaghan, a consultant radiotherapist of Bramble Grange, a cancer hospital. That evening, he came to Holy Innocence. In the ward station, I watched him as he studied Robin's file. Then he started a physical examination. His fingers ran over the naked, emaciated body, lingered on the neck and under the arms where some lymph glands were located. He spoke to Robin. Would you be willing to come to my hospital, Robin? We specialise in curing pain. Robin's wizened, Rip Van Winkle face broke into smiles. Bramble Grange was a small hospital, landscaped in a harmony of stone and water, parklands and sloping lawns. Dr Monaghan came into Robin's room, which overlooked the car park and the gardens. Now, don't worry about what you can eat at supper time. We'll cope with that. 
You know, old man, you've had an awful lot of those blooming drugs. We are going to have to do something about that. He explained that the drugs were kept in the dangerous drugs cupboard of the nurse's station just a few yards away. If tablets were ineffective in combating pain, an injection would be administered promptly. Since it wasn't a training hospital, all the nurses were qualified to administer them. I'm not going to fiddle with you at all this evening, Robin. You've had quite sufficient activity for one day. But tomorrow, we'll start treatment. The bed rest was pulled out and a trolley rolled up. Robin poured from a teapot and drank from a cup and then set to work with a knife and fork. Mesmerised, I watched. For months he'd been lying supine, sipping liquids through a straw. This progress was incredible, but true. In the passage, Dr Monaghan spoke to me. I cannot promise Robin a cure, Mrs Heron, but I'm certain we can do a great deal to help him. The treatment will take somewhere between a fortnight and a month. And you'll have to remember that he's a very, very sick child. Now, I emphasise that while a cure is not impossible, it isn't very likely. Not impossible, but highly improbable. A high-pitched bleep sounded from his pocket. Someone else needed him. We parted. Robin responded well to treatment. The pain de-escalated. His diet became more varied. A progressive programme was started to get Robin walking again. He sat trembling with nerves on the side of his bed, feet dangling. Gingerly, he leaned his weight down. The leg muscles protested painfully. Then, supported by two nurses, he took a couple of steps. The effort drained him. But, day by day, the faltering movements became more confident. Gradually, the pain grew less in intensity until tablets were sufficient to kill it. Their action was slower than injections, but effective. Robin drew on Herculean strength and tried to be cooperative. And time proved to be our friend. Robin was discharged. Sister Ryan, the ward sister, gave me a supply of tablets and dressings. <clears throat> sister, from your experience, what do you think the future might hold? No one can tell you how or when, Mrs Heron. We've let some patients go and not expected to see them for several months. They might be back in a few weeks. Others don't return for much longer. A few? They never come back at all. In November, Robin was readmitted to Bramble Grange when his abdominal wound erupted and pus poured out, but he was discharged two days later. In January, Dr Monaghan felt a swelling in the abdomen. Robin had chemotherapy and later further cobalt radium treatment in outpatients. February came, and on Dr Monaghan's recommendation, he started back to school, just as much as he could cope with without strain. We packed a lot of living into those months. We explored the city's docklands, consulted the newspapers for the arrival and departure of ships, drove along the cobblestone wharfs to see the merchantmen, the freighters, the dredgers and the tugs. And then it came, the holiday that we'd never dared to dream could materialise. We returned to the west coast. The boys went fishing out in the bay. A film frame, frozen forever in memory. Robin dancing, clutching two great fish, 
silver scales and sand spilling all over his anorak. Next day, pain. He lay on his bed, his face smudged with tears. It's my tummy. Oh, I've had pain all morning, and it's getting worse. The local doctor advised us to take Robin back to hospital immediately. It was late evening when we pulled into Bramble Grange. Robin was screaming with pain. The fragrance of wallflowers scented the air. I felt an ominous sense of déjà vu. Robin had ricocheted back in time to a labyrinth of suffering. Oh, I want to die. Oh, please let me die. Kill me, someone. Oh, my life is useless. It's almost always only bloody pain and misery. I'll never be free of it. Never. The surgeon came through the door, Jeff McMahon. Medium height, late forties. He had a firm handshake. His eyes dominated his otherwise undistinguished face. Amber eyes flecked with brown. Keenly intelligent and extraordinarily attractive. Robin was wheeled away to the theatre. It was midnight. In the sitting room, Bob and myself kept vigil. The empathy of silence, waiting waiting. Footsteps in the passage, my body tensed. Dr. Monaghan was speaking. There were adhesions, leaks and obstructions, but no tumours. You... You mean... You don't mean that the cancerous lumps haven't grown again? No. There were problems, but nothing more than the sort of problems one could expect after serious surgery such as Robin had last year. Ten days passed. Another abdominal operation... Robin's recovery was poor. His veins were beginning to reject the drip. It was shifted from hands to feet to groin, occasionally vomited. Jeff McMahon was puzzled. He spoke honestly. It seems there's some bug at work. It's not responding to antibiotics. I see. How long can we think in terms of? Six months? Nine months? It's unlikely to be as long as that. I carried Robin's goldfish tank to the sluice room. Nurse Gilligan was on duty. She emptied some withered flowers into a refuse sack and meticulously polished the vase. At the door she paused, seeming reluctant to leave. Uh, have they said anything to you about the diagnosis? Robin's? Well, it's a lymphosarcoma. That's what they said at Holy Innocence. My words tapered off under her searching look. She was silent. Well, I mean, if it wasn't lymphosarcoma, what could it be? Isn't it a cancer at all? She hesitated. I had to find out. Mr. McMahon did refer to a bug, but we thought it was an infection, something in conjunction with the cancer. Is it something else? If it had been a lymphosarcoma, there would have been migration to other areas, multiple growths. It's almost impossible that Robin could have survived these last months without further eruptions. But nurse Robin did have growths. They were discovered in Holy Innocence. They were treated here last year with cobalt and treated again at outpatients in February with deep ray and chemotherapy. 
The doctor said Doctors that... don't know everything, Mrs. Heron. Not by a long chalk. But nerve. If it isn't cancer, what is it? A parasite. Some sort of parasite. Something Robin swallowed. Gastric juices, wouldn't they destroy this thing? No. Apparently it's there. And it's active. The door swung closed behind her. I retched. Nurse Gilligan's overture had prepared me for Dr. Monaghan's words a few days later. Better brains than mine have been working very intensively on Robin's case in the past few days. They suggest something like this, Mrs. Heron. Yes? Last year, Robin may have swallowed something. It lodged in the intestines and set up action in the tissues. Tumours. Surgery removed the tumours, but these things damaged the intestines and continue to do so. It, but you inherited Robin's case as lymphosarcoma, mm -hmm. and the diagnosis was given, and the definition was malignant tumours. I had to hear him say that it wasn't cancer. Well, they weren't malignant. It's a parasite, and it responds to radium. That much we know. Now the truth had been spelled out. Robin's illness had been misdiagnosed. He did not have cancer. Days passed into weeks, many weeks. Vomiting, jaundice, problems with the drip as the veins grew tired. The jaundice indicated a blockage and the drip could cause a fatal clot. Jeff McMahon operated once more. The operation was successful. There was one patient who we saw occasionally but never spoke with. An elderly man with a pleasant smile who sometimes walked past Robin's open door. He must have noticed the colourful ornithological charts we had pinned on the walls. For one morning a nurse arrived with a book on native wild birds. The flyleaf bore the name Stephen O'Connor. When Robin had finished it, I laid it on his locker to return when next I saw Mr O'Connor. But he didn't reappear. Several days later, a neat little lady pitter-pattered down the passage to Robin's room. She handed me a paper-wrapped parcel. My husband asked me to buy this for your little boy. I brought it in today, but he's too poorly to give it to him himself. We'd like Robin to have it. From Stephen. It was an expensive battery-operated toy, chosen with thought and care. A long flex connected the controls to a feathered yellow bird. With the gentlest hand pressure, the bird hopped and sang a trill of music. It was the perfect selection for a child who loved wild creatures and whose fingers were too weak to constructively play with conventional toys. Stephen O'Connor died. The golden-plumaged bird stood on Robin's trolley for many weeks. It reminded him of home, of pet animals, of a blown-over, his dashing bitch. For me, it was a tribute to the kindness of the suffering for the suffering. Sister Ryan introduced me to a white-coated man, lank and lean, with eyes hazed behind tinted glasses. This is Mr. Cassane, Mrs. Heron. He's our pathologist. Cecil, Mrs. Heron. He had an informal, easy manner. Instinctively, I responded to him. We're on the right track, I think, Mrs. Heron. A parasitic infestation of some sort. Maybe a type of worm. It's a problem of positive identification. 
And Robin's condition? Clinically, it's poor. But from a pathological viewpoint, I feel that if the medical men can retain life long enough, uh, undoubtedly we'd be able to act and flush out these parasites with the appropriate drug. Weeks passed. Robin rallied, then began to fail again. The parasite was still proving elusive. One morning, Cecil Kissane stopped me in the passage. I've something to tell you. I braced myself against the wall. It's... Uh request, really, a rather strange one at that. Uh, Robin has mentioned owning a dog. Nothing surprised me any more, but this almost did. Yes. Yes, we've a dash and bitch, a blomover. She's about five years old. Could you bring me a specimen of her feces? There may be a link up here. We're pretty sure it might be a parasite that's comparatively rare in Ireland. Rare, but, but not unheard of. Does it have a name? The parasite, I mean. Of course. It's a dog parasite, actually. Toxocara canis. Oblomova took her regular journey out to the shrubbery. I watched. Presently, she heaved her long body upwards and arched it against a trailing branch. Armed with a shovel, I scooped the steaming feces into a polythene bag and sealed it with plastic wire. I wrapped the lot in brown paper. I was sweating and gagging by the time I'd wiped the shovel clean and washed it. Cecil took the package with a sardonic smile. A few days later, I saw Cecil again. The Toxicara tests on your dog, Mrs. Heron. Yes? They're negative. She's clear of infection. How might Robin have picked it up then, Cecil? From what I'm learning of it, uh, just about anywhere. The eggs are discharged and unconsciously ingested by humans, possibly on contaminated fingers, maybe handling a football that had rolled in dog excrement, or perhaps from uncooked vegetables, like, uh, let us say, pretty well anywhere. I'd noticed blood in Robin's left eye. Jeff McMahon confirmed it. Yes, we've done a specialised skin test and it is Toxicaracanis. But we haven't been able to complete the treatment because of Robin's low state. We're certain too of activity in the left eye. I turned away, unwilling to let him see me trembling. Inexplicably, Robin rallied again. Day by day he improved. He started to read. The drip was removed. Even the abdominal wound began to heal. He received a major dose of the drug prescribed to combat the infestation. Physiotherapy began to get him mobile again. He was weighed. Forty pounds. The average weight of a four-year-old child. Next day, Robin's eye was angry and inflamed. Within hours, it had deteriorated and narrowed to a slit. It was painful and distressed him considerably. An eye specialist called to examine him. The drug will cause a regression of activity in that eye, but there has been damage to the vision. To what degree, I can't accurately estimate as yet. Well, so ultimately Robin may be blind in the left eye? It's possible, yes. It was decided to treat the affected eye with radium, a, a painless procedure, but Robin rebelled. I hate hospitals and everything in them. I don't want any more doctors looking at me, poking at me. Oh, I want nothing but just to ease the pain of this bloody eye. It was balm to hear him fighting back. He'd moved forward from quiescent apathy and was taking a truculent stand. When he was angry, he expressed it verbally, sometimes without diplomacy, but the staff were indulgent. The eye drops became a bete noire. Robin winced and pulled away when they were inserted, but... Gradually, they succeeded in eliminating the pain, and that was the main priority. 
Robin's afternoon outings lengthened. His walking became more confident. Four weeks after his birthday, Dr. Monaghan made a decision. We're going to try letting Robin home overnight. We'll give you tablets for pain should you run into trouble on that score. Sister Ryan made the arrangements. We'll hold Robin's room for a few days, Mrs. Heron, just in case he needs it. It was five months to the day since Robin had made the nightmare return journey to Bramble Grange. But the trial was successful. Robin slept quietly that night. A deep, peaceful sleep, no moaning, no restlessness. Next day he had a bath. Five years have gone by. Robin's sight deteriorated as the ophthalmic specialist feared it might. Today Robin is blind in his left eye, permanently blind. But he's working hard at school and hopes to go to university and take a science degree, with the ultimate aim of a career in some way connected with natural history. He's passionately interested in ornithology and is also starting to play golf. What does he feel about the past? Well, my illness has left me with some scars in the physical sense. At school, I don't play games, although last year I did compete in the chess league and finished somewhere around third. However, I don't compete in any physical games, and well, I lack stamina. But I also enjoy fishing and cycling and going out for day trips with friends. According to my doctor, I'm about two years behind in growth for a normal boy of my age, but I'm certainly equal to many of my classmates. Do I have any regrets about what happened? Well, certainly I wouldn't have wished it. But it was a freak chance, and in a way I gained a lot. Maturity, in a sense. I developed mentally, and today, the only scars that remain are physical ones. As for me, those shadowed years were my metamorphosis. My initial bitterness has subtly changed. I now feel only a terrible sadness that so much suffering might have been avoided. Robin was lucky, and I was lucky too, that at Bramble Grange we found a team who would not accept defeat. <laughs>